Thank you. My name is Brenda Bay. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm as nervous as all get out. And that always happens to me. And I was told by small timers a long time ago that if the day comes that you don't get nervous, you better not get up to tell your story because you go setting in and you're not going to tell it from the heart the way you should tell it. And uh, we were in uh, Marietta, Georgia uh, last year. And we were out for breakfast with a couple that had flown down from New Jersey to see us. And um, Buddy says to me, are you nervous? And I said, yeah, I am. And this little waitress was standing there. And she looked over at us and says, you're nervous? She says, are you doing a presentation today? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, oh, don't be nervous. Get up there and be a champ. So I said, she comes back a little later with uh, our breakfast and she says, uh, what are you doing your presentation on? And I said, oh, I'm living life on life terms. She says, oh, be nervous, be nervous. <laughs> and I found that that, that true. I also heard it said one time, and something that my sponsor told me was, you know, that it's okay to be nervous. It's just God taking the truth out of you. And I kind of stood uh, with that. Um, I want to thank Gary. I, I truly enjoyed your talk uh, this morning and uh, Norma last night and, and Julia. I always enjoy listening to the Al-Anon speakers at, at any convention I go to because I always learn something out of their talks. And, and um, that's my main purpose in life today is to, to learn something new every day. And I find that happening on pretty much every day. Thank you. Uh, my sobriety date is November 7th of 1979. And, uh, man, am I some grateful. Uh, every, every day that I'm allowed to be on this earth a little bit longer, I get more and more grateful because Lou has a saying that, that really, um, affects me and he, he always says that, um, Never regret growing old. Think of those that are not given that opportunity. And uh, so it doesn't matter what trials and tribulations we have in life. We've got another day here, and, and somehow or other we can rise above, above them. I carry two things with me when I'm speaking. This is one, Kleenex, because I am known to get a little bit emotional. And I always write a few words on a piece of paper because I'm also known to be a little bit forgetful. And... Uh, I, I'm thirsty right now. I'm always thirsty when I'm nervous. I try to skip the water because if I, I know what happens if I drink the water too fast. And I know I'm going to be up here for a little while. So I'll try to take it easy and just skip the water. But I'm just going to tell you a wee bit about what it was like and then what happened and, and what it's like today because that's what I, my purpose is here, I believe, today is, is to try and share my experience, strength, and hope with anybody um, in this program. And I know this morning there was a brand new lady sitting next to Dawn. I don't know if she's in the, the room uh, right now. But I want to tell you one thing, that if you stick with Alcoholics Anonymous and work this program and be a, be a part of the fellowship and, and do the steps every single day and work the traditions, have a sponsor, have a home group, that um, you can rise above anything that happens in your life or anything that's happened in your past. 
I grew up um, quite the opposite of, of um, doing this. I, I was from a coal mining community, and I, I'm actually, I'm very proud to say that I'm a coal mining's daughter. I remember when Loretta Lynn came out with that song, I thought, oh, she's written this song just for me because I truly had such a wonderful relationship with my dad and my mother and my six siblings. And uh, I... I grew up in a little coal mining community in southeastern Alberta. And we, we truly were what they call the poor. Many times we didn't have food on the table. My mom would mix up a batch of bread dough and we'd have fried bread dough with butter or whatever, with margarine, never butter, that old white margarine, you know. Not this nice stuff that we have today. And, um, Although we were very poor, my mom and dad had such a great relationship and they taught us the things in life that are so important and, and the things, uh, such as loving and caring for each other and respecting each other and, and offering help to people if they needed it. My dad would take me every Saturday if I had my homework done and all my chores were finished, I had the whole day to spend down in the mine with my dad. And that was the high end of my week because he would drill the hole. He was the uh, one man that had the blasting papers. And he'd go down on Saturday and do the blasting for the following week. And he'd drill the holes and he'd let me put the dynamite sticks in the hole. And it was just the most wonderful experience at such a great time. It was a dynamite time with my dad. Uh, he used to always tell me when we were, when we were going down into the mine, I'd be in a coal car behind and it was pulled by a horse and my dad would usually walk leading the horse. Sometimes he'd get in the coal car too, but, um, he'd always say to me, you know, if anything ever happens to me down here or if there's ever a cave in or an explosion or anything, you go back to the mine shaft, where, and he, you climb those stairs, and when you get to the top, everything's going to be okay, you'll be safe. And you know, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they told me if I do these steps, everything would be okay. And that's exactly how it works for me. Uh, my, my brothers and sisters and I, uh, as I said before, we had a, a wonderful relationship. We still do today. Uh, one of my brothers passed on at a very young age, and uh, there's still six of us uh, that get along very well today. Um, my my school years were probably uh, a time when I first learned a little bit about a lack of self-esteem because. I wore the rummage sale clothing that belonged to other children, and my mom would go to the rummage sales and buy whatever she could to get us, and, and when we went to school, it was always something that the rich girl had worn to school, and, and my mother had bought me half on uh And I, I wore a, a coat one winter, I remember, out of old coats that my mom had gotten from several people. She bought a couple of them at the rummage sale and she would take them apart and make coats for each of us to wear. And I remember I had one coat one week and it had one colored sleeve on the front and a different color on the back. And you know, 
Country music means so much to me because they tell stories when they sing. And when Dolly Parton came out with that song, Coat of Many Colors, I thought, you know, my mom made that coat for me and it was made with sticks with love. It, every, everything that went into it was all that she had to offer and everything she ever did and everything my, ever, my dad ever did for any of us was because they loved us. And it was the best that they could do at that time. And that's okay. My, uh, when I, when I was 16 years of age, I decided that I was going to quit school. I was halfway through grade 12. I was actually quite brilliant in school. I, I did a couple of grades two, two days in a year. And, and it was quite a bit before I was, uh, going to be, uh, 16 and I was, uh, ready to graduate from school. And in that January that year, I was offered a job in the laundry at the hospital. And I decided to take the job, and my mom and dad were not very happy about that. But it was the first time in my life that I would ever be able to have any money of my own. And all I could see was the dollar sign. I didn't see the future, what's going to happen down the road when I didn't have my education. And my mom and dad both tried to talk me into staying school, and I decided against it. And I went to work in the hospital, and and then a few months later, I was offered a job at a hotel cafe. And this in a small little town, there was about 450 people, I guess. It was the first time when I moved into town that I ever had uh, running water. First time that this little old push of mine ever sat down on a flush toilet. And it felt so good. And I uh, had some nice soft kind of paper instead of newspaper or uh, orange wrappers or apple wrappers or something you you know what for. And, um, uh, you know, uh, my, my life just started to, to change a little bit for the better because I, in my eyes, for the better because I had a little bit of money to spend. And my very first paycheck, I took my paycheck and I bought a, a full meal, a roast beef, uh, a bag of potatoes, some vegetables, uh, some stuff for dessert, and, and I went home and had my mom cook it because she was the best cook in the world. She could make, she could make anything taste like it was the most expensive meal in a restaurant. The, the municipality used to give cases of pork to families that couldn't afford to buy meat. And my mom and dad every year had several cases of pork from the municipality. And my mom could cook that so many ways that you didn't know you were eating pork every single day. And uh, today, pork's still one of my favorite meats for a sandwich. I, I love it, you know, at that and oatmeal. And oatmeal was our, our staple, our main, uh, what we had to eat for breakfast. Anyhow, while I was working in this uh, restaurant, uh, this fellow from the telephone company from uh, Calgary, uh, I grew up in Alberta, and, and uh, uh, the little town I lived in was Kosi, and um, Calgary was a big city. And uh, Dan came out there to work with the telephone company, and he walked into the restaurant, and immediately, the cook in the restaurant wrote a little note on a, uh, one of those paper napkins that you put on the, placemats that you put on the table. And it, it said, 
There came a young man into town and into our cafe and sat down. He was quiet and blonde, and we could tell he was fond of our sweet little waitress called Linda. And I fell head over heels for this fella. And, uh, and he fell head over heels for me, I guess, in, in his, in his way of, of knowing how to love. And, uh, we had dated for quite some time, about a year, and then I went to my dad and I told him that I was going to move to Calvary because Dan was going, he was supposed to get in Calvary and he was going back to Calvary. So I went to Calvary, me and my sister. And the first month, we lived on fried onions and toast because we never had any money and we had decided when we moved, that we were not going to go to mom and dad and, and ask for anything. If we were going to make this move, we were going to do it, and we were going to make a go of it on our own, and we did. Uh, after I lived in Calgary a short time, Dan and I decided to get married. And uh, when I went home and told my parents, my dad just looked at me and he said, Honey, you're in for a rough road because he's a jealous man. And I took that jealousy for love. And I believe that he didn't want me talking to any other man. And he didn't want me dancing. He didn't want me having fun. He wanted me just at home to himself. I thought he did all those things because he loved me so much that he didn't want me to be around other people. And in his own way, he did love me. I know that today. I know that he loved me the only way that he knew how. But uh, when we got married, we had two wonderful little sons. And um, one of them, uh, Rick, uh, was born in 1967 and Jeff was born in 1970. And, uh, and then uh, my whole world fell apart. In 1973, I was brutally raped. And my whole life changed around. All my time as a young person, when I was dating, uh, I was known, I, some of the older people here, I don't know if you use this expression in the, in the States, but in Canada it's a common expression. If you don't sleep around, smoke, or drink, you're called a wet blanket in the crowd. That's what they called me. Little did they know that I was going to be the one later on with the wet brain. <laughs> But, uh, uh, you know, it, I, I, my world fell apart. I had drank maybe three or four times. And when I look back on it now, those three or four times that I drank, I never drank just to enjoy a drink. I drank because of the effect, and I drank to get drunk each time. And I knew that would happen. So after I gathered myself together, I went in our home to the bar, and I mixed myself a drink. And I drank that drink, and I thought about what should I do, who should I call, and instead of doing anything, I had another drink. And I, my memory, my whole mind just started to kind of eat, and I felt a little bit relaxed. And I drank till I blacked out that night. And my husband was out of town, and when he got back two weeks later, I believed that I was already a full-blown alcoholic. I could not be awake one hour of a day 
and without taking a drink, without having alcohol in my system. And I drank that way until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1970, November 7th of 1979. I had one six-month period in there that uh, I had quit drinking. My husband was a binge drinker. He would drink on table. And when he drank, he was me. And he would beat the hell out of me. And I usually end up going to a transition house or to some other place where I would feel safe until he sobered up and then I'd go back. And as soon as the time came around that he got paid again, it was the same thing. My head was through the wall, he broke bones. I don't blame him for that today. Nobody has the right to beat on anyone. But I could have left the situation if I had bothered to look for some help. Um, he had already beaten me down as far as self-esteem to a point where I felt like I was nothing. Uh, he, he do things to, to cause me to feel that I was less than anything on this earth. And that's exactly how I started to feel, that, that I had no purpose in life. All I was was a drunk, and that's all I was ever going to be. And uh, he went to his, his company, told him that he had to go to treatment in the uh, fall of 1978. They scheduled him for treatment on the 1st of January, and he told me if I didn't go with him that I wasn't to be in our home when I got back, and that he would get custody of the children because I didn't have a job where I could support them. That uh, I would, I had better not even be there. And if I didn't go to treatment with him so that he could continue to take care of me, and so that I would quit drinking, and that he could start handling me again. Um, and so I went to the treatment center with him. And needless to say, I wasn't ready. I drank up till the morning we went in. Uh, they allowed me to stay in the treatment center. And the only thing I came out of there with, I stole the little book as Bill sees it. And I had the nerve to get everybody that was in there that I had met to put their name and address in this little book. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I was doing my amends, I went back to the David Landry Treatment Center and I told them that uh, I had stolen this book and they told me to go ahead and keep it because I must have seen or read something in there that made me want to take that little book with me. There must have been something that gave me some hope of some sort that I would be able to sober up. I stayed sober. I didn't attend AA meetings, I, but I stayed dry for six months. In July of that year, uh, my husband was in an accident, and we were flowing in. We were visiting in northern Alberta, and we were flowing into a hospital in Edmonton, and... I was told that there was a good chance that he wasn't going to survive. And on my way over to my aunt's place that night when I left the hospital, I stopped at this little pizza joint. And uh, people were sitting there having pizza and drinking a glass of wine. And some of them had a bottle of wine on their table. And I thought, I'll just have one drink 
and that will help me to settle down and, and make me feel okay while I'm here alone in, in Edmonton. And I stopped and I had a glass of wine, I ate some pizza, I had another glass of wine, and then I ordered a bottle of wine. And I was back drinking full blown by the time we got back to our home in Calgary. But from, no- uh, from July until November, I drank more, heavier, I just couldn't get enough. I knew at that time that there wasn't a doubt in my mind that I am an alcoholic. People had said to me, well, maybe once you quit drinking and deal with being raped, that, you know, you'll be able, your life will come back together. But that wouldn't happen because I know as soon as I take a drink, I can't quit until I get drunk. It was like that from the very first drink I ever took. So I started, while I was still drinking, going to the odd meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and there was an old couple that stood at the door of one meeting on Saturday nights in Forest Lawn in Calgary. And when I walked through the door, they'd always give me a hug, and they'd say, Linda, go sit at the back of the room, and if you're asked to share, you say, I won't share my name, Linda Cinema, and I have absolutely, or Linda's post up, it was at the time, I have absolutely nothing to say. And Fred and Liddy used to tell me, one day, something's going to happen, and you're going to want to come back to these meetings sober, and you're going to want to have what the people in these rooms have. And thank you, God, that happened. Uh, I woke up one morning, at three o'clock in the morning, by this time I was getting up at least three or four times a night to have a drink because I'd sleep for an hour or two, an hour and a half, and I'd wake up and I'd be so jittery and I felt like I was crawling right out of my skin and, and I couldn't handle that feeling and I couldn't sleep and I couldn't stand up, I couldn't read, I couldn't do anything, so I would drink and pass out again. And I got up at three o'clock in the morning to take a drink and I went into the bathroom, and I looked in the mirror, and I absolutely did not know the individual that was looking back at me. And that was my moment of clarity, I believe. When I looked and I saw this poor lost soul looking back at me, and I dropped my knees in the bathroom, and I asked God in earnest, I begged God to please remove the obsession to drink. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like what I had become. I wanted to be a normal person again. And that morning when my husband left for work, I phoned the detox and asked them if they could take me, and they said they could. And I phoned my mom, who lived about 120 miles away, and I asked her if she'd come in and stay with my children, and she said she'd be there as soon as she could get there. And... I phoned a neighbor who I knew was in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I asked him and his wife if they would drive me down to the detox center, and they did. And from that day to this, I've never had a desire to drink. It is, to me, a miracle that that obsession left me, that I, I can be around people that drink today, Thank God, half my family drinks. My sons are both uh, drunk and drug addicts, and 
you know, but that obsession was lifted. And I never dreamed that that could ever happen for me. But it did. And I am very, very grateful. When I, when I say at a meeting that I'm a very, very grateful recovered alcoholic, I mean that from the inside of me out. Because I know that without the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, teaching me how to get my life back in order again, teaching me to become the loving, caring, understanding, respectful person that I was before I got into the booth, um, how can you not be grateful? How can you not be grateful? When I started uh, at Alcoholics Anonymous, I was appointed a sponsor right away. And we don't we don't do that anymore in Canada anyhow. I don't know if you do down here, but I was told that Mark is going to be your sponsor, at least for the time being. And and you're going to join a group, you're going to become a member of the group, and you're going to become an active member. If you want to be a part of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to be active. And the best the best place to start being active is in your home group. And I, for a year, all I did was empty ashtrays, clean ashtrays, wash coffee cups, go early, put on coffee, and I loved it. I took up the habit right from day one that had been given to me, and I stand at the door of my home group every week, and I hug every individual that comes in. It doesn't matter if they're a stinking drunk off the street the way I was when I went in there, or if it's someone that's got 40 years of sobriety, I give everybody a hug. Because I know how good that made me feel and how important the hugs are for me. And when I looked at the, the letters in the word hugs later on in sobriety, and I looked at these, you know, for humility, hope in the beginning. I needed hope. I had hope. Humility and honesty. If I hadn't had those in my life, I wouldn't have been able to start on the program. And then I looked at the, the U for unconditional love, understanding, unity. You know, it, it's what we, we're here to give to other people. And the G for, for growth and gratitude and God and God's grace. And, and the F for first of all sobriety and then serenity. And, and I didn't have any serenity until I, I was learning how to live sober. Because I was sober when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't come here to get sobriety. I came here how to live life on life's terms. And that's what it says in our preamble, that we stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. When I was drinking, I, I, my sons, I had great amends to make to my sons because I would pass out in the bathtub and they would come in and they would drain the water out. And sometimes it would scare them to death because the ladies will um, uh, kind of understand what I mean here. Did you ever shave your legs when you were drunk? You looked like you'd been through World War III. Uh, just scraped the heck out of them. There was hardly any skin left on my legs the next day. And, and the, the, the water in the bathtub would be red from my legs bleeding after. And my sons would come in there not knowing if I was okay or if I wasn't. But they would always drain the water and they would leave me, they'd cover me up and leave me there till morning. 
And I had the gall to make Alcoholics Anonymous and say I never did anything to hurt my son. You know, I didn't remember a whole lot of the last, the four years of my drinking previous to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I lived almost all the time in a blackout. And, um, my son, you know, when I went to make amends to them, they were, they were so generous and so kind and so loving towards me. And, and there were many other things that I did that, that, you know, I, I would, I would thank him and I would, uh, you know, un, unnecessarily because they would get on my nerves because I needed a drink and I couldn't get a drink, so I'd hit them around. And because I stayed in a, an abusive relationship and those children watched from the time they were small children to when I came into sobriety, they watched their father batter me around. It taught both of them that it was okay to beat up on women. And both of my sons have done a jail term six months each for assaulting a woman just locking them across the case. I thank God that it was nothing more than that. When they came to me and asked me if I would get a lawyer for them, I told them, no, I won't. Because it has to stop here. It's not okay behavior. No one has the right to beat on anyone else. If you want to give someone something, give them a hug. They'll love you for that. But they'll never have anyone anything to do with you if all you know how to do is beat them. My husband, who I stayed with through my drunkenness, and when I came into sobriety, for a few years in sobriety, I still allowed him to beat on me. But once I had gone through the steps and talked to my sponsor, and had, I, he told me it's okay to get outside help if you need it, Linda. And I went to a therapist in order to deal with being raped because I had never dealt with that. And that was the basis of my drinking because I felt like lower than anything on earth. I, when Dan was beating on me, I felt like I deserved it for some reason. I knew in my heart I didn't, but my mind wasn't listening. My head wasn't listening to what my heart was saying. And when, when, uh, uh, I got, I, I went through the steps the first time and, and, uh, it was about two years in sobriety before I went through the steps the first time. And my sponsor, uh, said to me, you know, it's time that you start laying down some guidelines in your home. You've got to set up some, some rules. Don't allow him to hit you. You're sober. You're in a state of mind today where you don't have to take that behavior. You are better than that. And she convinced me that I was better than that. And through doing the steps, I came to realize that I am better than that. Once I learned to love myself, I don't want people slapping me around. It's not okay. But, you know, I was so grateful that in this fellowship, I was taught about unconditional love. Because when my husband developed multiple sclerosis in 1987 he was diagnosed in, in, in uh, early spring of 1987 of 86 he was diagnosed with MS and uh, immediately he was in a wheelchair and 
I had to have him sent into an extended care hospital because he lost use of his bowel and his bladder, and he couldn't feed himself. And I had to work a full-time job. And my doctor told me, he says, well, he knew my whole history with that. And he said, if you don't put him into a place where he's being cared for, if you try to look after him at home, some of that old anger is going to come up. And you're going to learn that you don't want him around at all. You will put him into a, a care center where you can go and spend all the time you want with him when, when you have free time. And I did that every day after work. I went and I stayed uh, with him and I fed him his dinner and I got him ready for bed and then I went home. And we lived out in the country on an acreage. And for the next 18 months, I did that every day. And it taught me that I could love anybody unconditionally if I was working a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, step one, two, and three taught me all about hope and faith and trust because that's where I learned to trust in God. And um, without God in my life, I'm nothing. I'm absolutely nothing because the God of my understanding walks with me, sits by me, sleeps beside me, is in my head all the time. I don't have to go anywhere searching for God. I know that he's with me. When I speak, I always go up to the room and I say a little prayer and I ask God to be with me and to deliver the message that he feels that I need to deliver today. And it's comforting to know that there's a God there, that, that I don't have to walk the walk of anything anymore on my own. In 1985, uh, my dad, who was the Light of my life. I mean, my dad and I had such a wonderful relationship that I thought I could never, ever love anyone the way I loved him. And I, he had been diagnosed with cancer a few years before, and in 1984, in, in 1985, he died. And when they phoned me, my husband phoned me at work, and he said, I've got some bad news, and, and he says, um, your dad's in the hospital and your mom called and said, if you want to see him, that we better get out there. And by the time I got from town to the acreage where we lived, my mom had called back and said that he had passed away. And I know that there were ever a time in my life that I would ever consider taking a drink. That would have been because I knew that I was losing the one person that I could talk to about anything in my life but the one person that I knew that I never wanted to hurt, and that's why I never ever told him about the beating or about the things that were going on with me. And I thought, after I, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and started working the steps, I started to look and wonder, was that false pride? Did I not want him to know that he had been right about that man, that marriage? And uh, maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I don't try to second guess things today. I, I know that, that I miss him still today and he's been gone for a long time. But, uh, you know, in sobriety, I, I have done so many things and one of the things I did was, uh, in 1990, 
I was in Australia and I climbed to the top of Ayers Rock. And when I went and with the what reason that I wanted to climb this rock was when I was a young girl, I had taken out a National Geographic magazine and there was a picture of Ayers Rock in there. And I said to my dad, when I grow up, I'm going to go to Australia and I'm going to climb that rock. And he just patted me on the shoulder and he says, yeah, honey, because I think in his heart he never believed that I would ever have that opportunity. And I got to the top of that rock and I just looked up and I just see that I need it. And I know that he was there looking out after me. And then I looked down the rock. <laughs> I don't know if anybody here is trying to this rock, but when you look back down, there's not a bush, there's not a blade of grass, there's nothing. Just that rock. And part of it you have to climb with chains, like hanging on to chains. There's no way that you could climb it on uh, just, you know, on your own. And part of it is just tough climbing. And the part that was tough climbing, I didn't use my legs going back down. I sat on my butt and very slowly inched my way down. When I got back down to the bottom, the tour guide took me around, only myself and one other fella out of the, the whole, all of us that set out to climb the right rock, made it right to the top where we signed the book and everything. And um, the, the tour guide took us around to the side of the rock and there's dozens of plaques there of people that had died, either having a heart attack or heat stroke, goofing around and falling, or had just slipped and fell and died because it's a long way down and there's nothing there to stop that. And I said to him, why in heck didn't you show me that before I went up? And uh, he says, I'll tell you why I didn't tell you, because you talked on the tour about that being a dream of yours, something that you had dreamed of doing your whole life. And I didn't want to destroy that dream for you. And if I had showed you those plaques around the side, there's a good chance. That would have been on your mind, rather than the joy of what you were getting out of climbing the rock. So, anyhow, um, you know, on working the steps, on doing amends, I was grateful that I'd been able to make an amends to my, my dad. Because I remember one time we were at home for Christmas, and I had gone to the liquor store and bought bottles and stashed them all over the house in case someone found one, because all the family was going to be there with their children. And I thought, if someone finds one, I'll have one here and one here and one there, and all good little spots. And there was this old chimney uh, cupboard in, in this old house that my mom and dad lived in. And I thought, nobody's opened that cupboard for the last 35 years. I'll put a bottle in there, you know. So I took a big swig off this bottle, put it in the cabinet, went downstairs, and my son is there saying, Grandma, what's in that cupboard upstairs in the bedroom that Mom and Dad sleep in? And so it was all of our school treasures and our yearbooks and all the things that we had done in school report cards and things. And he wanted to see it. And my mom went up and she opened that cupboard door and she saw that bottle sitting there. And my dad was taking treatment for cancer at the time and they had told him that he absolutely could not drink. And my mom thought that was his bottle and he had hidden it. And she lit into him like you would not believe. And I stood there and never said a word. I let my dad take the blame for that. And when I went to make an amend to my dad, 
Um, I, you know, Dad, I have to talk to you about the time that that bottle was found in the cupboard. He said, I know that was wrong. He said, I know I didn't do it. And I knew the state that you were in and how much you were drinking and that you couldn't get it through a day without a bottle. But it wasn't up to me to say anything. I knew when you were ready, you would quit drinking. And, and, you know, it, it worked. Now, I've got to tell you about some of the things that I've done in sobriety because sobriety has given me so many gifts. I used to, I used to hide bottles in the garden. I don't know if I thought that maybe they'd grow and I'd go out there in the morning and there'd be two or three instead of just one there. But I used to hide bottles in the garden at, at all the time. I loved gardening, but I didn't do a very good job at, at, at it. And today, I, I grow some of the most beautiful flowers and the, the most beautiful things that, that you'll ever see. It, it's uh, just a love of mine is, is seeing them blossom and grow. And, um, uh, in 1990, the first time in my entire life that I had ever done anything on my own, and I booked a trip, I took my mom, and we went on a cruise to Australia from Tahiti, and it was too hot in Australia, so my mom flew back home. And I stayed there for three months, and I toured Australia and New Zealand, and Fiji. And that's when I climbed Ayers Rock. That's when the first time that I ever had been anywhere on my life, in my life, and enjoyed every single minute of it. I could walk up to people and talk to them, and we had so much fun, and I was interested in everything that was going on, and, and just wanted to learn more and more and more about their countries, and about AA there, and about everything that was going on. And I left, uh, I went to, um, after I climbed Ayers Rock, I went to, uh, the Barrier Reef. And I did some snorkeling there. And I could have stayed there for the rest of my life, just floating on that water, looking at the miracle, below the ocean, the, the beauty, the growth, everything that's there. It's, it's so fascinating. And, and, and I thought, and there's people around that believe there's no God, no creator. Where do they think this all came from? And from there I went to New Zealand. And when I was in New Zealand, I looked up a pen pal, a fellow that I had written to since I was 12 years old. And he, he, luckily for me, not so luckily for him, had broken his leg just before I got there. And uh, so he had time off work, and he and his daughter, who they had called Linda, after me. He and Linda took me all over the South Island of New Zealand. And we were driving down to Queenstown, we went by Arrowtown, and I said, oh, what are they doing over there? And he says, oh, they're doing bungee jumps. And I said, well, let's go. I always wanted to do one of them. So I said, first of all, we have to stop at a drugstore. And he says, for what? And I said, because I've got a denture, and I'm not going to lose my teeth and be dumb in it. So he said, well, and I went and bought this little thing of this polygrip stuff, whatever it is. And I put that in my mouth. It was about a week before I could get my teeth out. But I didn't lose them on the jump. <laughs> the jump was off the original bungee bridge where it started in New Zealand. It was off that bridge over a river. And um, when when I don't know if anybody here has done a bungee jump, but it's like an out-of-body experience. It's, it's, it's just something that you can't even imagine unless you've done it. 
And then they put me into a little boat down below uh, and took me over to the shore and um, told me that I had to walk back up all these stairs. And I sat there for about two hours because my legs were rubbery and I knew I wouldn't make it up the stairs right away. But I did my bungee jump, another dream that I never thought would ever come true. And that in, if I had done it in my drunkenness, I wouldn't have remembered. And, you know, if I wasn't in Alcoholics Anonymous and had learned that I can do anything I set my mind to do, I wouldn't have done it. And and I'm grateful that I had that experience. And uh, then I did a tour of the South Island of New Zealand, and then I went to Fiji, and I saw Fiji, and I came back home. And um, before I went on this tour, I have to backtrack because this is, one of the most important things that's ever happened in my entire life. I Lee told you last night we went uh he was called in as an alternate speaker to Cranbrook, British Columbia and, and I went there. I was supposed to be at a neighbor's birthday party and, and I just and I had planned to go to this party for a long, long time, but I had a cousin in uh Cranbrook who is a dear friend and he and I were the only two of us that were ever close, the cousins that were, that were really close. And I phoned him and I said, would you go to a I come out there, will you go with me? And he said, yes, Linda, for you, I'll, I'll do it. So I said, there's only one thing. You can't have anything to drink and you can't smoke any of that wacky tobacco stuff before we go. And he says, I won't do it. And he didn't. And he came to that meeting. And, and as Lee said, you know, he, he, the seed was planted, but he's not ready. He's still going to it today. And, but I'm not Lee. And when Lee came into my life, it was like, I, I also say it's like a butterfly that emerged from a cocoon because for the first time, he allowed me to do things. He, he understood me. He loved me unconditionally. He encouraged me. When I took up tap dancing, uh, with a senior group, and we, and we're called the Happy Poppers. <laughs> and, and it was something else. As a little girl, I always wanted to tap dance, and, and I never thought that I'd ever get the opportunity to do it. And I saw these ladies at a jazz festival one time dancing, and so, I went to the lady that was uh, teaching it, and I said, how can I get started with this? And she said, in September, I'll phone you, and, and if you want to come, you can come. And I went, and it's a wonderful experience. And um, I took up golf. And uh, it me that you should be the one that always was going around, oh, look at the yahoos out there knocking that stupid little white ball around the field, pretending like they're enjoying themselves. And uh, Lou wouldn't golf. Because on his days off, he wanted to spend the time with me. And if we were away somewhere, Lee didn't want to go golfing and leave me sitting in a hotel room. So I said to him, you know what, honey, if you get me a set of hot golf clubs, make them the cheapest ones you can get because I know I'm not going to like this, but I'll try it. And then he come home from work for the next two years and had to look for me on the golf course. <laughs> and last year I had a hole in one. <laughs> and a golfer could have golfed the whole life and have never had a hole in one. So, you know, God just helped with me that day too. And um, I, in, uh, four years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. And 
you know, I thought, uh, how am I going to deal with this? The fear sets in automatically, no matter what kind of a program you're working, when the word cancer comes up, there's fear involved. And um, people in the program walk me through, and Lee was by my side the whole way. And it's four years, and I'm cancer free today. I was in for a checkup not long ago, and everything's okay. And my mom, I've got two stories, I hope I have time to tell them, because there's two other things that, that are, um, very crucial in my life. When I was 50 years old, my mom laid it on a surprise birthday party for me, and my mom wrote me a letter. And she wrote it from the time that I was born, where I was at that day, and I'm gonna, I, I typed out a part of that letter that I'd like to read because I, this says to me what alcoholics can do for people. And she wrote, I want you to know that I am so proud of you. You have survived the way violent domestic abuse, alcoholism, near death and a head-on collision. You fought the death of your father, your husband, and the rejection of both of your sons. Neither of my sons talked to me today in that same place. They're both in my addiction. One son hasn't talked to me for 12 years, and the other one is schizophrenic, and he's um, on the streets of Vancouver, and um, in very rough shape, he's using drugs, and he's, he's not in very good condition. The last time I saw him was about two and a half years ago, and a friend called us that he was in the hospital in Vancouver, and Lee and I went in to see him. And I didn't know who it was. We walked in to his hospital room, and we turned around and walked back out. And um, he said, Mom, is that you? And we went back in, and he's got hair down to here, and he's like, you know, talked about this morning. He's covered with the shoulders, like Norma talked about. And uh, he's still in bone. There's no flesh on him whatsoever. And he went back to the streets in the hospital. He didn't want help. He's not ready for help yet. I haven't seen him in two and a half years. But I hear from time to time that he's still there and he's still okay. But every time we go into Vancouver and we drive down the strip road, I don't know what I'd do if I saw him yet. The, the mother and me would want to go over and pick him up and hug him and say, come on, I'll fix you. But I know I can't do it. And that's through my own experience, because if anybody had come to me and said, Linda, you have to come to Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to quit drinking, there's no way I could have done it, because I wasn't ready. But when the student's ready, he goes on. Goes on to write in this letter. I am so grateful to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous for helping you get your life back on track and keeping it that way. At age 50, you, you are a very strong lady and a treasured daughter. I know that no matter what obstacles you must confront, you will rise above them because your love for AA and working your steps and staying with the fellowship. You are truly happy and free for the first time in your adult life. All I ever wanted for all of my children was for them to be happy. And I believe you have found your happiness with me. And I know I have too. 
Please give more for me. Lou has helped me so much in sobriety, but I couldn't thank him enough. Um, the other, the other thing that I want to tell you, because this is how sometimes we're the only living example of Alcoholics Anonymous that another person will see. In 1990, I was in a, in 1991, I was in a car place. And, uh, a drunk driver hit me head on. And I was almost killed in the accident. I was in a coma for a long time. And when I came out of the coma, I couldn't eat, I had no feeling in my legs. And I later learned that it was because I had hit the brake pedal so hard that my foot and the brake pedal went to the floor of the car and I broke everything up this side of my body. And the, the discs in the bottom part of my spine were so compressed and then swollen that it caused the need to take clothes off the feeling to my legs. And, uh, when I came out of the coma, this, the nurse came in and she said to me, there's someone that's been calling here that would like to come and see you. And I said, what's his name? And she told me his name. And I said, it must be someone else. I don't know anyone by that name. And she said, well, he's insisting that he come and see you. So I said, well, okay, if he thinks it's me, let him come in. So this young fellow came in, 23 years old. He had the biggest book of flowers. And he walked in my room and he started to talk. And he said, I'm the man that hit you, not accident. And when I went home from the hospital, he came every single day. And he did my lawns for me. He did my ironing, my laundry, my vacuuming. He did everything for me. And one day, uh, every day, I'd make him whatever I was capable at that stage of my progression with tasks and the whole business to do. And we'd always sit and have either a cold drink or a coffee or tea and a cookie or something. And one day he looked at me and he said, Linda, I want to know how you've been able to forgive me for what I've put you through. And I said, it's a 12-step program that I belong to that teaches me that if I stay full of hatred and anger and resentment, I will never be happy because they're not compatible. They are not compatible. And he says, do you mind my asking what program it is? And I said, tell the house tomorrow. And he said, can I come to a meeting with you sometime? And he's been sober from that incident. You know, it's so gratifying to know that there's something that someone sees in you that you actually really don't see in yourself yet and that they want that you have. You know, Life is so doggone good today. I like like Lou always says, I hate to pay for anything to feel I'll get it. And I I truly do. I I just um you know I sponsor so many girls. I love the people that I sponsor. And you know what? They love me. And that makes all the difference in the world to know that I'm a a good human being that's capable of love and being loved. And that's all that matters to me today. If I continue to work the steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I continue to go to meetings, and I go to a lot of meetings, uh, and continue to sponsor people and be active in Alcoholics Anonymous, my life will just keep getting better and better, and that's all I want.
I want to thank you all for being here. Um, I love Cincinnati. I want to thank the committee for asking me to come here and share my experience and hope with you. And thanks Liz for, for calling and asking if we would come. The very first time I spoke, it was here. And I, I was so insecure that at that time, if they had put Lou before me the night before, I would have said, uh-uh. <laughs> because one time Lou and I were asked to go share in Washington. And the fellow that phoned, we were supposed to do about 40 minutes. And the fellow that had asked us, I said, I will, but I would like to talk before Lou. Because I'm very insecure about doing this. And that insecurity is killing me in a lot of cases. You know, it never leaves. It just gets better. And he said, okay. And we got down there. And he said to me, we're going to let Lou speak first because he's got such an important message. He figure everybody has to hear it. <laughs> you know what I told him? <laughs> I said, that's fine. Lou's very capable of speaking a full hour and a half. You let him speak the whole time. And I felt okay about doing that because that's where I was at in my program at the time. And that's okay. Anyhow, I just want to thank everybody. And uh, God bless you all. And, you know, if there's anybody new here, don't give up. Keep trying. Keep coming back. You know, life a yard, hard by hard. Life's a trial, mile by mile. But life's a sin, inch by inch. We take it a step at a time, a day at a time. Everything will be okay. Thanks, my friend.